Greetings, greetings, greetings. Today's read of Water and the Spirit, Ritual, Magic, and Initiation in the Life of an African Shaman, Chapter 4, A Sudden Farewell. The sun had already risen. A few scattered clouds were speeding across the empty zenith as if running away from the threat of the burning disk. The air was heavy, saturated by humidity as the wet soil yielded up its moisture under the boiling work of the sun. It was a few weeks after Grandfather's funeral. The rainy season had arrived. It had rained the night before. I knew it had rained in the middle of the night because my mother had wakened us suddenly, yelling to my sister Zanta and me to get up so that she could move our sleeping mat a little closer to the fireplace. Water was dripping onto us through a hole in the roof, and our mat was wet. Mother was always impatient and sometimes brutal when it came to waking my sister and me. She thought that we lived more in the spirit world than in the village world. She often used the word witch to refer to us, me because of my meeting with the little man in the bush, and my sister because of the deepness of her sleep. My mother thought my sister's spirit went flying off at night, as is customary with witches, leaving her body behind, sound asleep, and that is why my mother was so violent when she tried to waken her. My sister had more or less confirmed her suspicions. One night, when my sister had fallen asleep outside, my mother tried everything to waken her, with no results. Then, she decided to abandon my sister in the rain, thinking this would teach her to sleep more lightly. Nothing, however, woke my sister up. Toward dawn, when the storm had diminished, she came in, soaked and stiff as death. Since that night, nothing could convince mother that her daughter was not a witch. Among the Dagara, it is not a bad thing to be a witch. Those who aren't witches are not afraid of them, but they do find the idea of becoming a witch frightening. No one wants to embrace talents and abilities that would take so much energy out of them. After mother had awakened me and moved me out from under the leak, I heard father's steps on the roof. He was trying to locate the hole through which the water was dripping into the house. The frequent flashes of lightning must have helped him, for soon I heard him pound heavily on the roof and then climb down the ladder. A few seconds later, he came into the huge zangala to ask mother if the dripping had stopped. She said it had, and without another word, father disappeared back to his quarters. Grandfather used to call the rain the erotic ritual between heaven and earth. The rain represented the seeds sown in the earth's womb by heaven, her roaring husband, to further life. Rainy encounters between heaven and earth were sexual love on a cosmic scale. All of nature became involved. Clouds, heaven's body, were titillated by the storm. In turn, heaven caressed the earth with heavy winds which rushed toward their erotic climax, the tornado. The grasses that pop out of earth's womb shortly after the rain are called the numberless children of earth who will serve humankind's need 
for nourishment. The rainy season is the season of life. Yes, it had rained the night before. The sun appeared, drying everything and increasing in heat the higher it climbed. In the compound, two elders were sitting on the wet wooden bench next to the kitchen. I remembered having seen them a month and a half before among the group of healers and medicine men who were leading Grandfather's Zanu, especially the dwarf. I wondered if I should go and greet them, but I had to pee so badly I decided I would think about that while I was in the toilet. Just as I was about to enter it, the dwarf called out to me, My friend, pee, and then come here. I hurried into the toilet wondering what he wanted me for. There is plenty of blood in this kid, the white-bearded dwarf said to the man sitting next to him. He held me between his knees as he spoke. A great honor, for in the village it is a sign of tenderness for an elder to have a child sit on or between his legs while he talks to that child. The dwarf smelled like tobacco. Yes, Baiku, the other man whispered and spat. A dark stream of tobacco shot through the air with a nicotine smell. Where is your father? the dwarf asked, addressing me now. I don't know, I said. It was getting harder and harder to bear his smell. His baobao dyed with pink root juice had not been washed for years. The accumulation of sweat, tobacco, and decay had combined to form a halo of suffocating perfume around him, strikingly similar to grandfather's. He coughed, cleared his throat, and spat out a mixture of cola nut and tobacco. He wiped his mouth with his left hand, then cleaned his hand with his baobao, all the while pounding his foot on the mess he had spat onto the floor, Ugh. attempting to make it disappear. It eventually vanished, leaving a wet spot. Ah, uh, reader's note. That would be so challenging for me, my Western sensibilities to adjust to. Ah, uh, I continue. In the Dagara culture, elders don't care about cleanliness or the affectations that young people think they have to put on. Mm? <laughs> the nature of the other world is pink, so the elders dye their baobaos that color. The aura of disgust that elders love to create around themselves is the result of their having let go of certain social pretenses and especially of their unyielding concentration upon the spirits. They don't have any spare energy to invest in being polite. Among the Dagara, the more you dwell in the other world, the more you shock those who don't. Just then, my father came out into the compound from his room. Se, the two men said together, greeting my father solemnly. Se means to dance. And in its imperative form, it refers to a synchronized dance called su, seu. Elders use this word as a greeting when they require someone's cooperation. Se nile, my father responded. The dance is on. 
He inquired about their health and the situation of their households, then added as an extra measure of politeness, Is anyone not in good health? I mean the children, their mothers, and everybody else. There is nothing wrong with anyone, said the dwarf. Is everyone in your family in good health? I feel so, my father replied, but I've been counting the pieces of wood on the ceiling night after night. By this he meant that he had been finding it hard to sleep because of anxiety. That's all we're good at these days. It's like a plague. You have to be constantly on the alert to earn a few more days of life. You never know when calamity will hit, and the most disciplined is the one who will live the longest. While the dwarf spoke, he had his hand in his pocket, searching for something. He brought out a kola nut, which he split into two. He gave one half to my father, bit into the other half, and gave the rest to the other man. The three men were quiet while they chewed thoughtfully on the nuts, stopping now and then to swallow the juice. It was not long, however, before the dwarf broke the silence again. Our health is linked to our capacities to manage our responsibilities. A weary mind in a restless body is likely to forget what he must do and with whom. That is why our fathers say one man needs the eyes of another man to see what the shadow of the tree hides. I suppose you know why we are here. My father cleared his throat and said, It is indeed a matter that requires no explanation. The sick do not expect the medicine person to explain why they are being visited. Then he added, Let's proceed. Past experiences have taught me that procrastination in my duties has been the enemy of me and my family's health. Since my father decided to become a ghost, he has visited me quite often in my dreams, urging me to be faithful to my duties when the time comes. I have already been reminded of my responsibilities, and you need not do it again. Let's proceed. Good talk, the little man said. The beer preparation for the ceremony will begin a market from today, my father replied. We will make everything ready. That's good, the tiny shaman replied. Then we will get this out of the way before the dead become angry at us. In light of my father's past, it was not surprising that these elders had felt it necessary to come and speak with him. Everyone in the tribe knew of the disastrous consequences of his dealings with the white Jesuit priest. Now that my father was head of the entire Birifor clan, the two elders had come to make sure that he intended to perform his duties. Since grandfather's funeral, my father had been under an intense transformation of the type that had burdened him when his first wife's children had died, one after the other, under his helpless eyes. A few days after the last person had left grandfather's funeral circle, father, as if trapped in endless troubling thoughts over what to do in order to escape the responsibilities that so suddenly faced him, responsibilities that he feared because they entailed a conscious giving up of the new religion that had won his heart, decided to take some time to meditate upon this recent turn of events. First, he locked himself into his room for a few weeks and would not speak to anyone. 
During this time of seclusion, he would come out of his quarter and walk to grandfather's door, which had been quarantined since the funeral. I wasn't really sure that grandfather's room was off limits, but I had heard whispering to the effect that it was. People intimated that grandfather's ghost was at work in that dark room and wouldn't let anyone disturb it. Father frequently stood at grandfather's door and stared at it as though he could see something no one else could. Then he would go back to his quarter after a quick stop at the bathroom. It was obvious that father was not enthusiastic about being in charge of the elaborate collection of medicines, the magic tools that had made grandfather unequaled in our tribe. In a traditional culture, power and regard are based upon medicine and upon its related spiritual training and growth. But the more you know, the more obligated you are to serve the community. The more you own, the more you must give. Consequently, it is easy to understand why people are reluctant to embrace spiritual secrets and their attendant responsibilities. By departing this life, Grandfather had passed his medicine on to Father, and if Father chose to assume that burden, he would have to change the entire pattern of his life. One does not jump enthusiastically into being big. Status can swallow every bit of your life energy. Those who serve are not equal to those who are being served. They are higher than those they serve because they are in the spirit world. Those that are served are lower because they are in the material world. The irony is that each wants to sit where the other sits. The healer dreams about being human, that is, quote-unquote normal, while the normal person wishes to become as knowledgeable as the medicine man. My father was in a dilemma because he understood this. As if in perfect synchronization with father's mood, the entire Birifor compound was living in a suspended life. All day and late into the evening, men and women walked about in silence. Heads of families would come into our quarter in the morning and into father's room. They would linger there for a while and then leave without a word. I noticed that each of them before leaving would stand for a few minutes in front of grandfather's door. As the weeks passed, the silence became unbearable. The coming of the two Baumale or medicine men one morning was a major turn of events. For the first time, people in our compound began to talk out loud again. Something was about to happen. Before the arrival of the medicine men, Father Malloy had come to see us. It was as if he sensed the spiritual battle that was going on and was determined to sway my father from his duties. He arrived in mid-morning. Everybody was out except my father who, following his habit, was sequestered in his quarter. In contrast to Grandfather, who was eager to talk to me whenever the two of us were left alone, 
father liked his solitude. He did not care what I was doing in the meantime. So, when the priest appeared that morning, I was the first person he saw. I had never had a close look at this white Jesuit missionary before. His sudden appearance in the compound scared my soul out of my body. Father Malloy looked like a ghost, dressed from his neck down to his feet in an immaculately white robe. He looked almost as if he were flowing. As he strode in my direction, his arms outstretched toward me, I somehow had the impression that he wanted to suck my life force out of the crown of my head and my eyes. As is well known among the Dagara, never let a ghost look into your eyes. You will never live to find out why. I tried not to look at him, but his presence was so overwhelming that I could not help it. His face was mostly hidden behind a thick carpet of dark floating hair. Unless he was laughing out loud, as he did when he first saw me, one would think he had no mouth. Protruding from beneath his forehead was an immense nose, the size of an anthill, which looked down on his thick beard like a giraffe upon a small tree. His eyes were petrifying. Two round blue mirrors, so transparent one would swear they were made out of the stuff of the world below. They exerted an irresistible an irresistible magnetism. Like his mouth, his skull was generously hidden under a thick layer of undulating hair that formed a ring on his back below his neck. Father Malloy looked like a woolly sheep from the neck up and like a ghost everywhere else. So, when this apparition came into the compound and walked straight toward me, I almost fainted. I opened my mouth to scream, but nothing came out. Father Malloy did not seem to notice my bedeviled appearance. He grabbed me with both hands and lifted me into the air, all the while speaking in a foreign language. Then he brought me down against his his chest and hugged me. He smelled funny, a real ghost smell, but his body, I was sure, was not a spirit body. Grandfather had once told me that ghosts look like they have flesh, but don't. So, I figured that people who looked like ghosts, but did have flesh, were those he used to call the shaved pigs. The name he gladly gave to French people, because their skin was so unnaturally pink. I could see Father Malloy's pink skin shining even beneath his hairy covering. He asked, Where is your dad? His dagara was execrable. One had to rebuild the entire sentence to extract any meaning. I could make out only the word dad. I pointed to father's door. I was too numb to speak and too close to the vicinity of the priest's jungle face. Father Malloy put me down, spoke his gibberish again, and walked to my father's door. He opened it without knocking and walked in. As he was closing the door behind him, I saw my father move toward him. My body was still shivering from the panic fit Father Malloy had caused in me. I sat for a while in the compound under the sun to calm down, but the door leading to the outside was not closed. This priest had 
left it wide open when he entered. Chickens and goats began pouring into the compound. I knew I was was supposed to do something, but I couldn't get my wits together. The chickens overturned a clay pot that contained some leftover millet cakes and began pecking at them frenetically and fighting with each other. The large crumbs were rapidly swallowed by the grown-up hens. The smaller chickens, which could not get their share because of the infernal rhythm of eating and squabbling around the clay pot, stood around waiting for an opportunity to steal some crumbs from the mouths of those who who couldn't swallow fast enough. I became fascinated by the scene and wondered, do chickens really enjoy their meal? They don't seem to taste anything they eat. I remembered grandfather's attitude toward chickens. He believed that they spoke. He said that if you wished to comprehend this language, you should stop eating chicken. Next, you should bathe at dawn at the third crow of the rooster in some water mixed with chicken shit. After that, you should rub your body with the fat of a three-year-old hen. I don't know if grandfather had been through this disgusting process, but I know he used to amuse himself by listening to chickens. One day, he translated their language to me while a flock of them stood around a one-eyed woman who was pounding millet for the evening meal. The woman first had to separate the grain from the chaff. To do this, she had to pound the millet in a mortar, then use a calabash and a big basket to perform the actual separation. After filling up the calabash with the pounded millet, she would hold the basket in her other hand and gradually pour the pounded millet into it. Before the millet reached the basket, the wind would blow the chaff away from the grains. Only grain would fall into the basket. Grandfather told me he had heard a rooster say to a hen, Go over to her blind side and jump into the basket on the ground. When she notices you, beat your wings and kick hard. Do not leave until you're sure the basket is overturned and the millet is on the ground. Don't worry, she won't kill you. Women are harmless. No sooner had Grandfather translated this than I heard the woman get into a fight with one of the hens. The hen had jumped into the basket that contained the sorted millet. The woman was yelling and beating the hen. The hen was kicking everywhere in the basket as if she could not jump out. The fight ended when the basket was upside down and its contents on the ground uncollectible. The entire flock moved a few meters back and became silent. The woman swore and muttered while they, while the poultry waited. Then she picked up her equipment and disappeared into her compound. Grandfather repressed a laugh as the chickens moved in for a feast. After his death, I missed my grandfather immensely. His life had been so much a part of mine. I remembered his story as I watched the chickens near the clay pot eat the millet cake. Soon, they were making so much havoc that I knew father would come out if I didn't do something. I stood up, grabbed a stick, and went to war against them. Knocking them at random, yelling and cackling, they ran away from the pot and out into the open air. Then, I went in search of the goats. I knew they were in Mother's Zangala, looking for her condiments, but because the Zangala was dark, it would take a while for my eyes to adjust. As I stood there in the compound wondering what to do next, Father's door opened, and he and the human ghost came out. 
Father Malloy stretched out his hands once more and walked toward me, but this time he didn't scare me. I avoided him by running over to my father and sticking close to him. Father Malloy stared at me with a pair of eyes that looked like fire in the night, and I felt a chill on my back. Then he spoke to my father in such bad dagara that I felt that I failed to understand anything. My father, however, seemed to have understood. He said, I don't know, but if that is the will of God, I hope this time his will doesn't mean death. Father Malloy barked out a laugh that stopped so suddenly that I wondered if he really meant to laugh. He shook hands with Father and walked out of the compound without looking back. Father stared at me for a while, then mumbled something and said, Go play outside and keep the gate closed. I walked outside the compound. It was hot. I sat under the tiny nim tree on a piece of wood facing the pure river. My mind was smoking with thought. What was my father's relationship with this man? Why was Father Malloy so happy? Because of him, so many people had died in this family. Could he have killed Grandfather too? I was too young to know how to answer these questions, but my instincts told me that something serious had been decided. After Father Malloy and the two medicine men came to call, life gradually began to return to the compound. People began to speak about a forthcoming ceremony. I was too young to really understand the details, but I knew it was somehow related to Grandfather, Father, and the entire Mirafort clan. All around me, preparations were in progress. Dry, germinated millet was brought to the grinding stations that were built in every one of the women's compounds. And every afternoon, women were busy at their grinding, grinding mills pounding the red millet grain necessary for the preparation of beer. Millet beer has always been a part of major rituals. Our rituals are long, and one gets thirsty. The job was demanding in time and energy. A basket full of millet required all afternoon to grind into flour. Although my mother was among the grinders, I could never figure out whether she liked the job or not. If a job needed to be done, Mother always did it whether she enjoyed it or not. She confronted every duty as if determined to get rid of it in the most efficient way possible. The grinding was a case in point, for her efficiency was beautiful to watch. Moving rhythmically, her arms drove the smaller piece of granite back and forth over the surface of the grinding mill. At every third stroke, her right hand would release the stone and push a small quantity of unmilled grain forward. Then. With increased energy, she would push the small piece of granite over the larger surface all the way to the ditch and back. Her flat breasts pounded against her chest with each forward and backward movement of her slightly arched body. Each afternoon, during the preparation for the ceremony, the compound was full of songs. In order to combat the monotony of the labor, the women would sing genealogy songs which were long enough to last the six hours it took to grind a bucket of millet. Mother's grinding songs were now sad, for 
every woman in the village knows that if her husband becomes a leader, she must dedicate her life to helping him fulfill his obligations to the community. To be a leader, or the helpmate of a leader, you have to first die as a person. And Mother was mourning for her approaching death as just a simple village woman. Unlike the other women, Mother did not sing genealogy songs. Instead, her trembling voice spoke the litany of the orphan sisters. Heartless ghosts of the ancestors, they cut the breath of almost every flesh in that house. A mother, a father, and two daughters were left all together. And the ghost thirsted for more blood, and the ghost came and cut the breath of the mother and the father. Only the two lonely daughters remained, oh, the wrath of Tingan. Hunger liked to play with them, fear of death lingered in them. To the tribe they were cursed, and the sun set and the sun rose, dry in rainy seasons on the road. No clay pot warm with food ever went their way, and the daughters cried and marched to their parents' single grave. Father, mother, they sing, wake up, our bellies hurt. first few stanzas, sweat popped out on her face and her bare back. Each stanza was punctuated by heavy breathing. She seemed to commune with the intensity of work and her litanies, her arms pounding harder and harder on the grains. Each movement shook her body as it leapt forward and backward. After a few hours, she ran out of verses. Without transition, she improvised additional ones. I wondered how she could combine such heavy work with such creativity, but it seemed as if she drew her power from the strenuous labor. Without her improvisational singing, she might not have been able to sustain this monotonous work from noontime till dusk. When the last few grains were squashed and turned into white flour, she stopped singing and remained in her position for a while, as if suspended. Then, slowly, she straightened up, Breathing heavily and with a calabash began collecting the flour into a basket. Father's consecration ceremony took place about two months after grandfather's funeral. It was harvest time and the rain had ceased. The dry season had begun. Every morning the sun, unperturbed by the vanished clouds, rose triumphantly as if convinced that it would rain for the next six months Early that morning, people started coming to the beaver for a compound by groups. The crowd thickened rapidly as the sun rose higher. Something unusual was going to happen. Apparently, the two Baomale who had visited Father the previous week had been busy with him in the medicine room since before dawn. I had heard their voices in the wee hours of the morning when I had woken up to go to the bathroom. When I went back to bed, I could not get to sleep. I knew this was a big day for the compound. I heard noises in the poultry room. 
Somebody was trying to catch a sleeping chicken and had provoked an uproar. The rooster that was caught yelled his head off. That got me out of bed. I did not want to miss anything. I looked out my doorway and saw Father standing in the middle of the compound with the rooster. When I walked over to Father, I could see that he was examining the rooster in the fading light of the moon, lifting its wings and feathers. When he was finished, he walked into Grandfather's room and I followed him. Inside, darkness prevailed and my father melted into it. I was convinced there was more than one person in the room and these unseen presences made me all the more uncertain about what to do. Scared, I crept toward the mud elevation of Grandfather's bed by thinking its shape into place. No sooner had I walked a few steps than I bumped hard against a clay pot and fell headlong onto someone who was not my father. The man's bow-bow smelled unfamiliar. He cleared his throat and grabbed me. As I wrestled to get free, he tightened his grip. I thought about biting him but gave up and remained still. Where do you think you are going? he asked. I recognized the dwarf's voice. His sticky hands released me and I relaxed. Be careful when you walk around in the dark, he said in a friendly manner. Another person noisily cleared his throat and said, How many adults know how to travel without light? The voice was very close, yet I could not see its owner. The dwarf still held me loosely, not replying. Then my father spoke. Come, this way, Mado. He grabbed my arm and pulled me toward him. I sat down next to him on grandfather's bed. The dwarf began a prayer that lasted forever. He spoke very fast. The speech was punctuated here and there by spitting, coughing, and growling. Grandfather's name kept coming up over and over. I could also hear the regular occurrence of the refrain. Ka suomwanku, ka komwanzu, meaning so that iron can cut iron. The man was obviously conjuring up the world of the ancestors for protection against evil forces. Every time higher forces are invoked to intervene against other higher forces, elders use these terms. Meanwhile, the other medicine man was repeatedly shaking a contung belle, the bell that calls the spirits, and a kuor, a ritual drum. The cacophony was hallucinatory. Images crept into my mind. I saw Grandfather on his deathbed speaking to me, but this time he was very young, almost a teenager. He looked radiant and he floated in a ring of green, red, and yellow light. His lips were moving as if he were saying something, but I could not hear anything. When he vanished, I realized that the infernal cacophony had ceased. Just then, the rooster crowed. The dwarf asked for him and my father handed him over. Some timid light began to filter into the room with the sunrise. I could now see the white rooster and part of the dwarf. He was seated on the floor, his legs crossed facing the statue of Burn, the god of the compound. In one hand the dwarf held a sacrificial knife and in the other he held the rooster by the wings. He lifted the rooster's head and bent his neck back. While his big thumb held the rooster's head tightly against the wing, he slashed the rooster's throat. A stream of blood dashed out and hit the wall behind the statue of Beru. The dwarf lowered the bird's neck and directed the stream onto the statue. 
drink, he murmured. Many Dagara rituals are private, attended only by medicine men, but ceremonies involving sacrifices are open to anyone, including children. Children get used to sacrifices very quickly and even look forward to them because they get to eat meat, a rather rare food in the village. The dwarf put the knife away, pulled out a few feathers from the rooster's tail, and threw them against the statue of Byrne. Then he dropped the rooster near the entrance to the room. The rooster stood up and tried to walk away as if he had been through a mere inspection, but he soon realized that something was wrong. He staggered forward and backward, then sat, facing the door. Each one of his movements was accompanied by an ow, the Dagara sound of acquiescence from the dwarf. Watching a rooster sitting on its backside is funny. He seemed to be thinking about something, but he quickly gave it up and tried one more time to walk away. The second attempt was as unsuccessful as the first, so he lay down then suddenly got up and dashed out toward the yard with a shriek of surprise. A rooster can shriek even with his throat slashed. He landed heavily on the ground and took off one more time. The dwarf acknowledged each effort with an abaha of satisfaction. The rooster landed on his back and spread his wings, legs frenetically pedaling in the air. If it died belly up, it would mean the ritual was good. Finally, the rooster died on its back. Its ghost was accepted. Its relatively lengthy death had constituted the proper response to the elder's invocational prayer. The sun had risen and the compound was filling up with joyous people, each one holding a calabash full of foaming millet beer. Father gave the rooster away to a man I did not recognize. Then, without a word, unmindful of the greetings that poured from every direction, Father walked back into Grandfather's room. A man called out to me, Mbara, come take a drink. He was so tall I had to bend my neck back to see his face, most of which was hidden by the smoky air. All I could really see of it were his two shiny and mobile eyes. The man knelt down to my height and directed a calabash of beer toward my mouth. The more I drank of the sweet, biting red liquid, the more I wanted to drink. Unable to breathe and drink at the same time, I didn't know whether I should stop to catch my breath or continue till I had enough of this sweet stuff. Noticing my predicament, he said, This calabash isn't going anywhere. You can pause and breathe if you intend to drink more. On the verge of passing out from lack of oxygen, I stopped drinking. The man stood up and waited while I caught my breath. Ready for another round? he asked. I bent back my neck and saw a row of bright teeth smiling down at me. Their hilarity was frightening. I said no and went to the fireplace where I stretched out on the floor and blacked out. When I woke, it was dusk and I was lying on father's bed. I ran out into the yard. The crowd was gone. Only a few people remained, still drinking. Father seated in the middle of them. When he saw me, he said, Do you feel hungry, drunkard? Go to your mother. You missed it all. Why? Where was he all day long? Asked a young man from the compound next door. A member of the Dabire clan managed to get him drunk, father said, smiling. So he saw nothing. To choose a day like this to sleep, you must be sleeping your last, the young man commented. There were a few women in Mother Zangala, some singing quietly, others speaking about the day. 
and a few sitting silently. Each one held a calabash of beer in her hands. Mother brought me some food, a cold millet cake with some chicken and spinach sauce. I ate without paying much attention to how the food tasted. I was starving. The next morning, early, father disappeared into the bush with mother. This was unusual since neither of them ever went into the bush together. Because father did not take his bicycle with him, I knew that they were going to conduct some business with the spirits and the ancestors before going to the farm. As she left, mother asked my sister to meet her later at the farm for the collection of dry wood. Left alone to guard the compound, I went outside where the other children were playing and joined in their game. From far off came the sound of an engine. Although the millet was too tall for anybody to see what kind of vehicle it was or where it was headed, it drew everyone's attention. As the sound approached, we waited, breathless and speechless. We knew it was a white man coming to the house. The idea of having to face a white man caused panic. Who among all of us kids would dare to stand his or her ground in the presence of one of those frightening ghosts? Kids began to disappear rapidly into the safety of the millet field. Father Malloy coming to see my father, but as the roaring became deafening, I too took to my heels. The thought of being lifted up into the air toward that bushy face again was unbearable. I ran toward the house as fast as I could, trying to think of a good hiding place. Father's quarter was closed, so I could not get in there. Mother's zangala was open, but it was large and there was too much light in there. I would surely be found. The vehicle stopped right outside the compound and roared like a mad dog. Out of time, I ran into Mother Zangala and hid behind one of the huge clay pots. The engine stopped, and I could hear footsteps in the yard. I held my breath as the intruder walked toward Father's quarter, shook the door violently, and shouted, Elliot, Elliot, where are you? As if disappointed, he walked into the Zangala. I was frozen with terror. As if all the dogs of misfortune had chosen me that day, an irresistible need to cough took hold of me. Though I vainly tried to repress it, I coughed. Father Malloy heard me. Without a word, he grabbed me from behind the huge clay jar and lifted me into the air. I opened my mouth to yell, but nothing came out. But when my head bumped against the wood of the ceiling, the pain helped, and I cried out. Father Malloy did not seem to notice anything. Still holding me, he walked out into the compound yard and stared at me for a while before speaking. Where is your dad? he asked. His dagara had not improved, but I understood him, probably because I heard the word dad. He talked some more, but this time I understood nothing. After he finished speaking, he put me down on the ground and dragged me by the arm out of the compound and over to his enormous motorcycle. Mounting it, he placed me on the fuel tank in front of him. 
then started the engine which roared like a lion caught in a trap paralyzed by terror I remained still the BMW groaned and coughed then shot like an arrow in the direction it had come from Thank you.